Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I need to cough, so hold on. <laughs> and I'm joined by Angelina Sanford. Live, Live and unscripted. <laughs> yeah. Um, we could cut it out. I could have hit the mute button, but you know, we're just, no, we're just I think people like the gritty feel of this show. <laughs> yeah, that is def- that's it's gritty now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You should see the microphone. Um, so we are here to answer your questions, your listener questions about the great. That's very optimistic. Well, we are here to field. <laughs> Some of your questions. We're here to read your questions on the air. (laughs) And then talk about something else. So uh, first of all, though, Christmas, uh, Angelina, Adam, tell me about your Christmases. What was your, uh, what was your most literary moment of your Christmas, of your Christmas? Angelina, I'll let you answer that first. Oh, my most literary moment? Could be something you, a, uh, you know, something you received. Could be something you gave. Could be the the time you spent reading the whole weekend. I don't know. Something. <laughs> hey, Adam, you, well, you have one for this, don't you? Adam, you better go. I'm just like I drawing a blank just, here. Yeah, before we went on, just mentioned that I spent the uh, Christmas break reading John Le Carré spy novels, which I don't get to do very often, and it was a great way to kill a couple of days. Just sitting in my living room doing nothing and talking about nothing. reading about 1960s 1950s espionage it was how awesome. dare you say that reading amazing spy novels is doing nothing <clears throat> well that's true good point <laughs> as soon as adam told me that before we started i i had a tiny heart attack and then recovered enough to do the show just because you know it's like kind of wish i was there kind of wish i could have been listening to you read them aloud yes did you think of uh did you think of one I think my literary moment is yet to come. I have not yet opened all my gifts. The, the books are wrapped under the tree. I can actually see them and they will be unwrapped later today. So I, okay. I think my literary moment is yet to come. I, oh, yes. I mostly, Little. mine was, I had a house full of my children and there, I did not read very much. I carried a book around, you know, I'm one of those people. <laughs> like just like so off so hopeful. I carry books around. Well, it's just, <laughs> just in it's case. like part of the outfit. It's like, a belt or a pair of shoes. It's the best accessory ever. Exactly. (laughs) So, no, carrying books around reminds me of a, when I was 19, my, my parents said we all, we all flew to Europe one summer and um, my dad brought us his reading war and peace. And every time that we entered a country, they checked it for a false bottom. Like they could not believe anyone was reading this book. (laughs) Clearly we were smugglers. (laughs) Well, that would be a good good book to smuggle things in because it's so large you could fit like a small. And it was a big hardback copy, you know. It yeah, it looked suspicious. It did. You easily could have fit like a small armory inside of it. <laughs> Sneaking Bibles into China. My grandpa did. Um, oh. Actually, he did it into um, the Soviet Union or Yugoslavia or something. Anyway, side story. I'll just leave it at that. Um, so, see, we are so your love of spy novels comes because you know it's in your DNA to yeah, like exactly. be sneaky. Exactly. Well, of course, yeah. I'm Slovenian. Um, <laughs> our song told. We're all gonna Wikipedia that now. <laughs> yeah. Um, have at it. Have fun. So we are here to answer questions. Let's let's dive right into it. And Jennifer asks on this is from the Facebook page. Can you talk about the structure of the novel as a whole? And she says that it starts off with rumors and gossip about who Gatsby is. We are introduced to him, she says, through the eyes of non-essential characters. 
And the novel ends in a similar way. We are told the story of what happened to Gatsby, his death, again through non-essential characters. Why is there this narrative distance, is what she says. It's as if Gatsby emerges from a mist and fades back into it at the end. Adam, what do you think about this? Do you agree with her that there is a narrative distance here um, and that he seems to emerge from a mist and fade back into it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think that the narrative distance between uh, between Nick Carraway and Gatsby is is definitely there. And I think he does emerge from a mist even for Nick and then return to it. But even more so, the distance between Gatsby and the reader uh, because of that that structure, structural element of the novel is very pronounced. And uh, I think it's a great observation. And I would say that, that it's certainly intentional on Fitzgerald's part. Basically what we've been talking about in these episodes has been that there is some sort of pretense involved in Gatsby, some sort of, um, you know, his, uh, some sort of invented identity, some sort of invented history. He's, he is um, not quite real, not quite solid. And I think that narrative distance accentuates that theme I think it's a great observation. Hmm. Anyway. Yeah, I agree too. Yeah, absolutely. I agree too. And uh, I think that's a very, very uh, poignant observation. Very good reading to the person who asked that question. Uh, that it's noticing that it starts with rumors and gossip. Um, because the driving question, I mean, the identity quest part of this story is the question of who is Jay Gatsby, right? Um, and uh, there's a, there are a great many books that follow this same pattern if you look for identity quests. And you know, the Odyssey is an identity quest. And you, same thing, right? The story starts off with rumors and gossip. Who is Odysseus? <laughs> Where is Odysseus? Uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's the book about Odysseus, and Odysseus doesn't show up until five chapters into this thing. And even then, right. he's not named for a long time. Um, so the question of who am I? Who is Odysseus? Telemachus is on an identity quest because he's saying, you know, I don't know who I am because I don't know my father. Um, so yeah, that, I, I think that that was a very good observation to notice that structurally the way the characters are introduced are so many stories will do this where it's a delay of introducing the character. So you have a, a title character who we don't meet in the first chapter. And when we do meet him, we meet him through the eyes of other people who don't actually know him. And it's a long time before we interact with him and we never, because of the narrative structure, we never interact with him directly right it's always through someone else always through nick carraway i was fascinated by how many points that we learn about gatsby are not even dialogue points but it's just nick recounting a conversation right him specifically Mm -hmm. saying let me tell you right here about the time i learned you know x y and z Mm -hmm. yeah that that and that that part the the fact that nick stands between us and gatsby uh, i think is really significant too because even the the uh even what we, what we learn about Gatsby, we're learning it through Nick's recollection mm-hmm. and through Nick's perception. And so as readers, Nick himself is as essential a character in the story as Gatsby is. Along with Nick, we want to know who Gatsby is and where he comes from. And we want the mystery of Gatsby to be answered. But Nick is also in our purview as readers. We're also making evaluations about Nick and we're, we're treating him as a character. And so Fitzgerald has basically doubled the the avenues that he has into our minds and hearts by giving us Gatsby to gaze upon and then also giving us Nick to gaze upon and to he, he essentially gets to say two things every time uh, a, a, a circumstance comes up, which I think is a great, a great technique and it allows Fitzgerald to be really profound. Oh, yeah. It's, it's brilliantly structured. Brilliantly. I'm always fascinated with things like structure and point of view. Very, very well done. Okay. Um, here's another question. This is from Annie. 
And she says that she was surprised to hear both of you say this being Angelina and Adam, not like two other listeners. Uh, Angelina and Adam say that they didn't think Fitzgerald was saying something about the institution of marriage itself. And she mentions that she can't remember how you worded it exactly and doesn't want to misrepresent what she said, which they surprised her by seeming more dismissive of how Fitzgerald used the symbol of marriage. So can you explain a, a little bit about what you think Fitzgerald is doing with that symbol? She says that when she read the passage between where Tom confronts Daisy and Gatsby, that she thought Fitzgerald was purposeful in making marriage the place where Gatsby and all the characters encounter the deep mystery that cannot be overcome surely by will. Marriage, not the institution, but the sacrament, is a powerful, natural symbol um, of the gospel, she says. But do you think Fitzgerald could be making a positive metaphysical statement with how he uses this imagery of marriage? Or do you think it's you know, do you think that he's being more cynical about it? Angelina, I'll let you go first on this one since Adam went first on the last one. Okay. So yeah, I saw that question on the Facebook page and I couldn't remember exactly what it was that we had said in the, in the previous episode that, that gave the impression that I, I thought uh, Fitzgerald was dismissive. So I, I thought about this and I think my answer is, I think marriage is one of many mysterious things that Gatsby runs up against in this story. Uh, that is uh, that has a deeper meaning that he can't understand. So I do think that that happens, but I don't think it's the only place that it happens. Um, so, so I guess my answer is yes and no. Yes, I think marriage is significant in that it's a it's an, an ancient institution that is not so e- easily undone, right? Just like it's not so easy to make yourself a millionaire and enter this world and ta-da, I'm in, because because Gatsby's never in. You know, he he gets cheated out of some money. There, there's all these um all these points in the story where Gatsby runs up against a world he can't understand. And, and Daisy and Tom's marriage is, is, a, is another example of that. But I don't think that Fitzgerald is saying any one thing is the answer. <laughs> I, I don't think he's reductionist like that. Um, so no, I, I, don't, I don't think he's cynical against marriage, but I don't think he's saying Tom and Daisy's marriage is the way out of this mess. <laughs> right. I would agree with you on that last point, Angelina. I, I think he's, I like the way you put it. He's up against something he doesn't understand that there's something rigid about, um, about Tom and Daisy's marriage, something that, that won't be swept away, that can't be ignored, that actually overcomes him. And it actually overcomes Daisy as well. This is a far cry from saying that Fitzgerald is using it as a symbol of the good, the true and the beautiful or something using it as a symbol of something we should strive towards. I think his attitude towards Tom and Daisy's marriage is as cynical as cynical can be. I mean, they're perfectly miserable in their marriage. They're perfectly miserable people. Um, uh, and I, and, and Nick's attitude towards them is, um, is cynical and tired and dismissive. And I think Fitzgerald's is too. It strikes me that the, what, what he's doing with their marriage is using it as a way to, as Angelina just said, as a way to confront Gatsby with something that's going to finally undo him or, or, uh, better to be one of the many things that are going to conspire to finally undo him. But I don't think he has a sacramental view of anything. Mm. Mm. Right. I agree with that. And it might be helpful too, to make some distinctions. Uh, I, I noticed this when I teach other books as well, that when an author does something in the story, we have to keep it in terms of the text and not try to make it bigger than the text. In other words, just because Fitzgerald shows Daisy and Tom having a horrible marriage doesn't mean he's making a statement about marriage, capital M, right? It, it's, a, it's a statement about these characters. Agreed. Agreed. And, and, but even if you go farther and you say Fitzgerald is using all of the symbols and all of the relationships in his 
story to say something about American society in the 1920s, he's saying something negative about it. Oh yeah. Oh not yeah. Something positive. So I think that, I think that would have to be a fair reading of the novel would have to, would have to include that, that he's, that he, he himself is cynical about society and all its institutions. And it, I think he grants their marriage, the ability to foil Gatsby, but I don't think he's going any farther than that. Right. I think that's one of the things that fascinated me about this book is that there is cynicism at the same time that it's not anarchy. If you, if you follow my meaning, right? Like he, there's a certain respect he has for the mystery of these institutions, even as they are kind of unraveling. Do you, do you catch my meaning? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think I do. I mean, I, I guess I'd put it as, as a kind of a wistful longing for something that can't be regained. I mean, that's the, that's the feeling I get from, from the Eckelberg imagery that he wishes that, you know, maybe somewhere in his, in his mind and heart, he wishes we could go back to where there was actually eyes behind the spectacles. But, right. But so, we can't. So books can kind of, they can, they can air in one of two ways, right? They can air into sentimentalism and nostalgia, you know, wanting a golden age that never existed. And they can be just, you know, full of cynicism. Uh, but there's this, but there's just this interesting tension in this story. Uh, yeah, which I agree. From falling into either one of those directions that, that I found particularly fascinating. That's a mm. hard tension to hold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a follow-up question. Do you think Gatsby and Daisy could have, be ha- could have been happy together? <sighs> nope. You mentioned that Tom and Daisy weren't happy. Okay, go on. No, they Tell couldn't have. Um, well, <laughs> one reason is that they weren't. They actually were together for the whole summer, and it didn't help anything. Um, but, but also, I think the, the underlying point of the novel is that this... this the illusory quality of the green light. Gatsby's actually striving for something that is receding before him uh, ever more, the, the harder he strives. And it's not because necessarily circumstances are just getting in the way and foiling him. It's because the thing itself doesn't exist. And so it's a fantasy. It's a delusion. And so uh, I don't think a fantasy or a, a delusion can actually satisfy or actually work. I agree with that. And, and, one of the things that struck me in the last couple of chapters, so, so the, is it the second to last chapter where Gatsby dies? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, one of the things that struck me about that chapter was where he dies and the swimming pool. Um, because it struck me, so, so just to remind uh, the listeners, right? So they want to drain the pool because it's the end of the summer. And he says, oh, but I've never used it. Don't drain it. And so he finally uses the pool and then that's where he gets killed. And I thought that that was so fascinating because it was such a picture of, him trying to step into the fulfillment of what he had built, right? Like it's not going to be this illusory thing. I'm going to actually swim in the swimming pool and then he dies. Yeah. That's a great example of what I'm talking about. I think I I, I love it. Hmm. So yeah, I would say that they can't, they couldn't, they couldn't have been happy together because that's not the story Fitzgerald is telling. Hmm. Right. And I, man, I, I also find myself thinking, can Daisy be happy period? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't think any of these people are terribly happy within themselves. So, hmm. well, okay. So we got a bunch of questions about uh, Jordan, and I think we should. This is as good a time as any to to jump over to those. So Sarah, for example, says, "What's up with Nick and Jordan?" Uh, which is a very general question. Um, but she, she says, "In the car coming back from New York, 
Jordan lays her head on his shoulder and, quote, 30 melts away or something like that. Then at the house, he is sick of her along with the rest of them. Then on the phone the next day, he says he wants to see her, but they fight about the timing and end up hanging up on each other. And later at their final encounter, he tells us that he is half in love with her and he walks away with regret. Let's see, there's another question here about Jordan. I got to see if I can find it now that I... Why, well, why Katie asks why ultimately didn't Jordan and Nick work out? Um, so I, I guess we can, we can leave it at that for now. What, what do you make of, we, I knew that Jordan was going to be someone that we didn't talk about enough. Right. On the, right. on my last five shows. So I knew that was going to come up in this episode. So I guess we can just start by saying, what role do you think she plays and, and why do you think that they, they weren't able to, to work out in some ways she kind of, for someone who he supposedly is in a relationship with, he does not spend a lot of time, um, thinking about her really she kind of floats in and out uh herself so uh jordan thoughts yeah that rate that does raise the question what she's doing there in the novel uh because our focus as readers is on gatsby and secondarily on nick as he is as he views gatsby and as he relates to and reports on gatsby and so the, it's a legitimate question what's jordan there for and it, it strikes me in my reading of the novel that she, the main function she performs is to give Nick an experience of his own in the East that corroborates mm -hmm. what he's seeing in Gatsby so that he um, arrives at the end of the story, fully disillusioned, not just in, by this secondhand experience of Gatsby's, but by his own experience as well. And in some ways it parallels Gatsby's experience. It's, um, it's as much fantasy as reality. It's ultimately unfulfilling. It's the, uh, they're, they're after something that, um, that doesn't really exist and they finally can't make it work out. And so, um, I like, I like the last line where he says half in love with her and half angry. I turned and walked away. Uh, futility is the, is the end result of his relationship with Jordan Baker. And, and I think that's, that's intentional. He's supposed, he needs to have some sort of futile rela love relationship of his own to parallel Gatsby's so that he goes back to the Midwest at the end and leaves the whole thing behind for, for double set of reasons. That's exactly how I read her as well. And uh, I think what, but, but, listeners are picking up on when they say what's the deal sometimes they seem like they like each other sometimes they seem like they hate each other that's all intentional ambivalence i mean there's an attraction repulsion going on there for nick and jordan which is also nick's attraction repulsion to the life of the east mm -hmm. um and i thought it was hugely significant at the end when he breaks with her because the story ends with him fleeing from a girl but not a clean break right he drags mm. it off he doesn't make a decisive moment right there's no choice and we kind of gave him a hard time for that but, but if we're tracing Nick's journey as a character, at the end, he has changed. He does confront her. He does do the right thing, confront her, have the talk, end it, and then leave with a clean break with the East and with Jordan and nothing lingering there. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you have any... Well, I mean, again, we're not that we're going to criticize Fitzgerald, but do you have any... Um, do you wish that she was... A sort of more well, a sort of more well-rounded character. Do you think that that could have helped the novel in any way, or or is he being purposeful and sort of leaving, making her sort of a like a, almost like a cipher? You know, like there's, we don't really yeah. know her. We don't really know what makes her tick or what motivates her, or except maybe victory. 
Yeah. Well, she's a, she's a minor character. It's, this is a very compact novel. It's very, um, it's terse. It's, it's tightly structured. There's not a lot of room for fully developing at a Dickensian level, all the minor characters. I think more attention to, to Jordan would have been confusing and distracting maybe to the, to the thrust of the novel. I don't know. What do you think, Angelina? Yeah, I can't think, I, I agree with you. I can't think I'd want anything different out of her. I, I, I thought her character was very well drawn. I, and then just the fact that they sort of waltz in and out of one of another's lives. I mean, that's the thing that they, that Nick comes to the conclusion at the end, right? They're all just careless people. And, and yeah. they, they, there's just this, there's a floating quality out of all of them. You know, they float in, they wreak havoc, they float out with, with apparently no, no consequences, you know, mm-hmm. that the Daisy and Tom can just, pull pull up and leave and wash their hands of all of it but lives also, have been wrecked yeah exactly i also like how the, the few details that we do get about jordan baker um give us the right impression of her she's a she's a cheater mm-hmm. and she's not always telling the truth and it's in the in the end it turns nick off and gives him that the the necessary scorn for everything eastern Mm. by the time that that it's over Mm. all right moving on nicole asks something for you adam and i don't i can't recall if you specifically mentioned a comparison to great expectations but she wonders if you could just if you could identify well i guess if you could compare great expectations to the great gatsby and simply saying that they both have the word great in the title, it does not count. Um, so <laughs> she mentioned that they're both obviously about idealized romantic relationships, well, expectations, identity issues, and those sorts of things. But in what ways do you see some, some other common ground? Uh, and maybe perhaps oh. in particular in, in ways that you like both, reasons that you like both books? Oh, what a great question. The, the, um, uh, the, the opportunity afforded by a question like this is the great one because it allows you to, to see different authors from different intellectual periods of the, of the tradition uh, talking about similar issues with their, you know, in their own voices and from their own cultures and from their own sets of assumptions. And the differences, I think, uh, once you've got a, you've established a broad similarity, these are both identity quests. These both have to do with idealized romantic relationships. These are both about someone coming face to face with the fact that his dream was actually built on a fantasy and a delusion. The, the similarities are in place. And then looking at the differences um, really produces some great discussion and some great thinking. I mean, we, we have Pip in Great Expectations. Uh, Dickens threw Pip's career trying to make some points about character development i think which is i think is dickens's main point what's the difference between pip the naive boy and pip the mature man and what kinds of things ought we to uh, rejoice in in pip's development and he actually is trying to say something positive i think about the hope and opportunity that there is in growing up to actually look back on your youthful Uh, naivete and your youthful, I would even go so far as to call it sinfulness and be better for the experience to see yourself clearly and to uh, take maturity from that, from that self sight. And so Dickens actually says something in great expectations, something hopeful about the world. This, this possibility lies before us all. And in Fitzgerald, the, the absence of anything like that is so striking that when you compare it to a novel like Red Expectations, in view of the similarities that the, that the, the listener noticed, 
the the differences are really really profound. And you, then the next question is, what do we put those differences down to? Yes. Well, Charles Dickens is a different guy than F. Scott Fitzgerald. Maybe he had a different set of presuppositions of his own. But also, the milieu that he's writing from is much different. In the 1860s in England, we got a different culture coming to bear on the author and his experiences than we do in 1920s America. And that's, you know, facets of intellectual history come into play. And so that it's just a wonderful conversation. But I think that I, my answer to the question would be the differences that spring from the two authors plying their trade on the same themes is where the real great discussion can happen. Mm -hmm. Well, before we get to other questions, we need to take a quick break and I need to read some hilarious one-star Amazon reviews of The Great Gatsby. <laughs> because, oh, Mary, because Mary Jo Tate, uh, who is a on the Facebook group, is a is a basically the, the world's foremost Gatsby expert, I think. She um shout out to Mary Jo. She posted on Facebook a article from LitHub, which shares the 100 best one-star Amazon reviews of the Great Gatsby. And I thought this is something I have to read. I have to read some of these for oh, this. I cannot wait them. for this. Please. Be prepared to spit. Be prepared to do some spit takes. Um, <laughs> don't drive your car into the the the, the ditch, and um, don't accidentally drop the very hot platter of food that you're carrying. If, if any of these, are. I'm gonna do a spit take every time you read one. This is fascinating. Okay, so <laughs> well, I'll just read. I'll just jump around here. So there's a hundred of these. I'm not gonna do them all. This is an example of one of them, which I think is perfect. Boring start. Boring end. Too many unnecessary things. Too many whores. You'd have to be the person who loves Romeo and Juliet to like this book. <laughs> <laughs> Only someone who likes Shakespeare would like this. I love that. It's sad that, that just... Be Here's one from the Honorable Wilson P. McGillicuddy. It's sad that just because something is old, people automatically think it's great. This book is a terrible <laughs> bag of garbage full of nonsense. Do yourself a favor and don't read this. It's not a classic. It's just terrible crap that society thinks is good because it's old. Society, society, yeah. Adam, society. A, book, a book written in 1925 is old. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, now at 70. Uh, okay, uh, okay. Now at 70 years old, I remember why I hated this book. The Kindle, <laughs> the Kindle, the Kindle rep is okay, but Sally doesn't change Fitzgerald's stupid book. Only elite academics would ever have urged people to read this. After all these years, it's just something you must read. Don't. Here's wow. a great one. Too pricey for such a small book. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's my favorite one. Here's one. I love it. Um, this, that reminds me of that. That reminds me of that Woody Allen line. The food here is terrible. Yes, in such small portions. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one. Just so everyone knows, this edition of the book has been edited from the original. They took out all the Jay-Z songs and substituted something called jazz. Maybe it's just a typo as the spellings are very similar, but still. I don't understand why nobody caught this before the version went to print. <laughs> <laughs> this is a classic about the 20s and it looks like a sad time. <laughs> well, that's actually surprisingly deep. Yeah. Um, oh. Let's see here. Beautifully That's my dissertation written. right there. Uh, beautifully written with careful flowing language that despite that couldn't make me like it. Stupid shallow characters that drove me insane. Seriously, why was that woman sobbing over shirts? Or was it, quote, symbolic? And a plot that annoyed me. Seriously, if I wanted to read about a bunch of drunken entitled rich prigs in their secret snooty hidden world, I'd just pick up one of the local go gossip rags. Wow. Um, Never read it before. Don't know what all the hype is about. Not a likable character in the whole saga. And in my opinion, not that well written. Waste of time. 
I think Matt Bianco wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those novels you hear about your entire life and finally get around to reading. What a bore. The stilted language is like trying to muddle your way through Beowulf in Middle English. Save your money if you're just dying oh. to read this book and get a used paperback version. I love this. Oh. This is oh. bad. Like Beowulf is bad. That is so great. Beowulf's not in Middle English. Do I need to explain the history of the English language? Right? This is one of, yeah, one no, of my, no. my pet peeves. on Amazon, find the review and respond to it. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to put some actual Anglo-Saxon down there and be like, read that. <laughs> <laughs> you know how in the movie Silver Linings Playbook, Bradley Cooper's character finishes farewell to arms and yells WTF and throws the book through the window? That's how I felt about this book. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I love it. Give give depth and and color to your book review by referring to a less than ten year old movie. Exactly. I thought it was a love story. Not even close. It's a lot of mumbo jumbo. <laughs> <laughs> well, this conversation's over. Yeah. Um, it was so boring. I didn't bother to finish it. Uh, let's see. The movie was better. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, there's one I'm trying to refine here. Here we go. Here's a good one. Silly, insipid, uninspired. Storyline for what it was is storyline for what it is over the years has gotten confused with the real life travails of the author. If this is what America today wants to see and read as literature, God help us all. So that guy's oh. got some. He's sad. He, he's sad about the world right now. Um, <laughs> I can't believe F. Scott Fitzgerald could write such nonsense. That's a good one. Um, Wait, that's the whole review? Yeah. That does beg a couple of questions. Exactly. Boring. I had it for class. I read it three times and still don't get the point. So you, we'll just blame it on your teacher. That's what I was thinking. I always tell my students that if your evaluation of a work of literature includes the word boring, that says more about you than it does about the work oh, of literature. Thank you. Talk about, right? Do not well, say boring. All right, this is this is a good one. This review is not boring. Now I'm a teacher and at one time found myself in a position where I had no choice but to assign my students dot 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 the great Gatsby. For that act of humanity, I humbly beg forgiveness, though I know full well that the teacher who betrays his students trust in such a way can no more expect absolution than can a Nazi underling who acting on his superior's order sends a cowering Jew to the gas chamber. And don't you dare tell me I didn't get the book. Since I was supposed to be teaching the thing, I read it three times. Well, to be frank, two and a half times. Midway through my third reading, I gave up in disgust, both at myself for having persisted so long and at the novel itself. I mean, who really gives a fig for any of the characters in this book or for that stupid green light? Ooh, ah, and the Valley of Ashes, how very apocalyptic. And TJ Mecklenburg, or whatever his name was, how could anybody really care about any of that? <laughs> I've seen lots of reviews where high school students, probably with help of their students, say they must not be smart enough or mature enough to get Gatsby. Not at all, my friends. Believe in yourselves. Youth of the world force-fed Gatsby by illiterate curriculum writers. You're neither too stupid nor too immature. Gatsby, at any age, is simply awful. And you can tell your teachers I said so. Did she really compare it to sending Jews to the gas chamber? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a thing. Yeah, that's what wow. happened there. <laughs> I think I guess you can say whatever you want in a comment chain. That sounded like it took some time to write yeah, it also. I, yeah, it did. It took me a few minutes to read it. Um, okay, Deadly Boring. There's a good one. I would have given it zero mm. stars, but I guess one star is as low as you can go. Um, there's a lot of really long ones here, which I won't read, but they're hilarious. Are um, any of them literary? Are, is there any literary content to any of the evaluations? On on Amazon? 
Well, I mean, just he's setting the bar pretty high there, Adam. <laughs> okay, here you go. That one, the last one he just read was by a teacher. Did you miss that part? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I noticed that, but there also wasn't a single literary observation in it. Okay, here's a good one. No, uh, agreed. Bottom line is this: capital T, capital H, capital I, capital S. This twentieth century masterpiece? No. Two days of incredibly wasteful reading time I will never get back. Let's just say I created my own Valley of Ashes. It's called a burnt-up copy of The Great Gatsby in my dumpster outside my house. Upon finishing the novel, found myself contemplating who was driving whose car, who was kissing who, and who shot who. Then an incredible idea dawned on me. I don't care. The book is a confusing roller coaster. That's not what he said. That's me paraphrasing. The book is a confusing roller coaster ride of creepy behind the scenes love affairs, convoluted past relationships, and the inconsequential and oddly enough sanctimonious attractions to a mysterious green light, wealth, and a never ending desire for the ultimate 20th century American ideal a big house, a big wallet, and a big Rolls Royce. 20 pages from the end when I discovered the old windbag Gatsby had been murdered. Yes, I do pl- take pleasure in ruining the ending to millions of eager readers out there. I closed the book and ended the worthless drivel once and for all. All in all, I have to say that I don't take any shame in saying that the only satisfaction I got from reading this book was when I found out he was dead. I guess I'll just make up the two days I read, I wasted by writing condolence letters to Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald's unfortunate relatives. Anyone who is an ancestor to that worthless excuse of an American novelist should be offered sincere, consoling, and extreme sympathies. He means descendant, not yeah, ancestor. I think that's exactly <laughs> what, what they meant to say. You so. just want to get in there with a red pen, don't you? <laughs> Sorry. I feel it. I feel it. You know, it's really hard not to want to edit uh, comments like those, especially since it's it's interesting that all these comments have the have in common that they're comments about the 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 reader's feelings mm-hmm. and the reader's reactions. In other words, they're all statements about the reader and his ideas. There's not a solitary statement about Fitzgerald and his ideas in any of these. Yeah, well, here's one for you. I wish more of the characters would have died. They all deserved it. These type of books are popular with the lemmings who wish they were rich and so badly want the lifestyle of the rich and famous. I would stereotype these people as ones who also dream of living inside a J. Crew catalog. <laughs> wow. So anyway. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Yeah, yeah I definitely would like to live inside a J. Crew. So anyway, I think that's true of all three of us. If you Google LitHub. Gatsby reviews. You'll, there's many, many more. Um, there are some criticisms of a loose plot. That's about all they say, though. So, you know, one person did give him one and a half stars. That's uh, that was that was uh, that was very generous of them. I feel like one of the it's one of the tighter plots you'll read. I think. <laughs> Here's one. Here's the secret. The author was a drunk. Oh. <laughs> That's I'm, an ad hominem. I don't like that. <laughs> I'm so glad that um, that we have just so many great, that there are just so many great readers in the world right now. Anyway, let's get back to some actual questions from our listeners, but I thought we had to take a little detour there. Um, okay, here's a question from Anne Marie. No, that she, just makes me so grateful for our audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Shout out to Mary Jo Tate for um, for all of her um, great background stuff on Gatsby and Fitzgerald. Oh so my if gosh, you're on the yeah. Facebook thread, you know, go in there and look up Mary Jo's comments. She's posted a lot of uh, a lot of articles and a lot of uh, uh, bonus content for us, as well as these <laughs> one star reviews. This is from Anne Marie. She's got um, two things that I think are worth addressing here, and here's the first bit. Angelina and Andrew, it seems that you agree that the only way for the book to end is for Gatsby to die. But does that mean that there was no possible redemption for Gatsby? Adam, Angelina, I'll either whoever jump in there first. I, I won't even. I just go ahead, Adam. I gotta think. The, the the question is that 
whether there could have been a redemption for Gatsby. Is that, is that it? Well, no, there, it says, or whether there's no possible redemption? It says, does that mean there's no possible redemption? So if, I guess, the, I guess it's kind of an if then scenario or since then, since you believe that the best way for the book to end or the only way for the book to end is for Gatsby to die, which we talked about last week, then does, does that mean that there is no possible redemption for him? Do you, do you believe that that was not in the cards, I suppose, is what she's asking? Right. I definitely believe that. I definitely believe that the redemption was not in the cards um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a work of, it's a work of art that has been delivered to the reader complete and you know, only goes one way. In every single possible Gatsby world, he dies in the end because there's only one possible Gatsby world and we just read it. But, but for another reason... I really think it's necessary that he that he uh, be destroyed in the end uh, for the same reason that it's necessary that Hamlet be destroyed or that Lear be destroyed or that Othello be destroyed because it's a tragedy. And that's what happens to the tragic hero. In order for the author to make his tragic point, the the tragic hero has to be undone by his own weakness. I mean, it's a it's a genre, right? So um I don't know. I think that's, that's really the, that's the, the point, the kind of point Fitzgerald is trying to make. And so he executes it all the way to the end. I don't know. Does that address the question, David? It will, it, it addresses it. <laughs> <laughs> Angela, I, I, I I'm curious to know what Angela is. No, I agree. I agree with what Adam says. I don't think the question of Gatsby's redemption is the question that this novel hinges on. Um, that's better, better said than I just said it. I, uh, I think you're exactly if, right. If, if anything, I think that's Nick. Nick is observing all this and choosing, do I want to be part of this or will I go back home and not be part of this? Um, I don't know that I'm ready to say yeah. Nick is redeemed. That seems like really strong language for this novel, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. he's the one observing and learning and making choices based on what he's seeing, which I think is what we're supposed to do as the reader too, right? Yeah. I think that that's a really, you know, I mentioned, I talked about that a little bit last week, how important that is to me that Nick leaves. That's a, a crucial thing that I think is often forgot, forgotten. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm still struggling with my voice. So I'm kind of um, half dying over here. And Adam, it sounds like you want to speak. So now might be the time. Oh, no, I actually did. I was interested to, to hear what you were going to say about Nick. I mean, you did mention before that, that Nick's being a, an observer who's, who has decisions to make now based on what he's seen. And uh, correct me if I'm mis- misquoting you, that that's something of a hopeful sign, right? I, I think, yeah, yeah. Hopeful. I, I think a hopeful sign is a fair way of putting it. I mean, I think that there is at least, I think that there is at least hope that he has turned his back on, on what, on the sort of, right. Uh, the sort of things that he's been in the midst of. He, they, 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 and which indicates that his eyes have been opened to some degree. And so the assumption right. is that he at least is going to go back home where he, where he has learned to, um, yep. To, to, he's learned to value what yep. read that home represents. And, yeah, and, and I think, and, I think you're right. And for that process to go forward, Gatsby has to be, um, eliminated relative. <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, or, or maybe even to put it this way, Gatsby's character has to be less changeable than than Nick's Gatsby has to be the catalyst yes. that forces Nick into these, uh, these internal conversations. Mm-hmm. And so Gatsby's course has to be, has to be set and the end prescribed for him has to come about. 
Right. And I would say, too, I, I like what you brought up about the, you know, the nature of the tragedy, the form. I'm a big proponent of understanding the form of anything you, you're reading because the form sets the expectations. And so I think we have to be careful not to expect The Great Gatsby to be a comedy and to give us a redemptive ending and then be upset with it that it doesn't. Right. Um, there is hope in a tragedy, but you, you have to know where to look for it. Right. So when Macbeth falls apart, uh, there's, there's no redemption for him, but there's redemption for Scotland, right? right? Because Malcolm comes back at the end and there's redemption for Denmark and Hamlet. Um, uh, so, you know, it's always this sort of, you know, you're looking at the dead bodies and then as an aside, there's, you know, uh, uh, the sun is coming up over the horizon, right? It's the promise of hope, right. um, which isn't a rah-rah comic ending. Everything has not been set to right, but there is the promise that things will be set to right, but that there will be horrible prices to pay for that. Yeah, it, I think you're right. And I, the third example that I used of Lear, the the glimpse of self sight that he has at the end is a um, to the to the the viewer a hopeful glimpse. It's a right. it's an encouragement to the viewer to to see himself before it's too late. And I think you're I think you're right about that. But it's not Gatsby that has this absolutely this hope in him. It's it's Nick if it's anybody. Agreed. Yeah. So I see Nick as, you know, more like Malcolm or somebody like that, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and again, I think we, we, we can't judge the book outside of its own terms. Um, if we're right. frustrated that we don't see Nick 20 years down the road <laughs> as an upstanding virtuous man, that's, that's not a legitimate criticism of the book. It's enough that he turns his back on, on what he saw East. I mean, that's step one. Yeah. And it's, and I think you're right. If farther than that, Fitzgerald doesn't care to go. Right. Right. And maybe that's the message people needed to hear when that book came out. Is that just, you gotta, you gotta start by turning your back on this. You got, we all have to agree. There's a problem. Mm -hmm. So, but I, I'm just, I'm, so I'm processing something you guys are talking about here. So are you suggesting then that it is, uh, it is wrong of, of readers to to try to get at or or contemplate or or ask what happens like what it all could mean beyond the novel because you say because adam you said that he stops that's where gatsby chose to stop right that's where he, he didn't care to go further but, fitzgerald right yeah, yeah fitzgerald yeah <clears throat> but does that mean that as part of our you know ongoing dialogue of the book we should not be contemplating what the book could be setting up or or what what the the, the place that the, the book leaves the characters and what that might mean for their future if we're talking about them as characters um, as opposed to like the ideas that you know go ahead go ahead i actually i would say that the that the um what is what is very legitimate and i think fitzgerald was probably hoping for is a conversation between us as readers mm -hmm. and as americans mm -hmm. Uh, and as early 20th century Americans originally about what what Gatsby's story and, and Nick Carraway's story says about our culture and what conclusions we should draw, we, we should be asking. Fitzgerald was hoping that we would have a conversation as readers about whether he was right in his diagnosis of American society and of human nature and of the intersection of the two and then go on and live more thoughtful lives in light of the conversation that we just had. But, in, but, I, but I think it's a crucial distinction. In order to have that conversation uh, faithfully, we have to leave the characters where they are. Mm -hmm. and, and I think speculation about what Nick Carraway went on to do, um, where, while it may be interesting, is fundamentally non-literary. 
what we're doing then is we're having a conversation about the ideas generally that a, that a work of literature has, has spawned or has, has gotten started. And that conversation is important, but it's a separate thing from understanding the work itself. Absolutely. I very strongly agree with that. And, and I appreciate the distinctions you're making. Like, so um, when I talk about, you know, accepting a work on its own terms, I'm, I'm talking primarily of, well, I'm talking about a few different things. I'm talking about really hearing what the author is saying and understanding it and judging it on its own terms. And, and then I'm thinking of, of things like, um, like uh, it, it, it gets valuable to sit around and say, so what does Fitzgerald think we need to turn our backs on? And what do we right. need to turn our backs on? Like that's a, right. that's a legitimate conversation, but that's like right. Adam said, that's not a literary conversation. So where I would be uncomfortable with is somebody saying this book is not redemptive. There's no hope in this book. Um, that's unfair to the book. It wasn't trying to tell that story. Just yeah. like Beowulf th- wasn't trying to tell that story. Right. Wait, and if so it want it, I'm sorry. Go ahead, David. Well, I don't, I'm not entirely sure I follow what you're saying there at that last bit. I mean, I, I agree with you and I'm not sure I disagree with you, but I'm confused about what that last bit, that last bit means. You'd have a problem with someone saying it's not hopeful because that's not what it's trying, because it's not trying to be hopeful. Okay. Let, um, I'm just, I'm just trying to clarify. Have, okay. No, no, this is good. I can, I can clarify it. Um, I would have a problem with someone condemning the book on the basis that it's not hopeful because they wanted a happy ending or they wanted to see everything resolved within the story. When I think Fitzgerald is primarily uh, observing problems, bringing problems to our attention and then asking us to figure that out. Agreed. I think that's well put. It it doesn't have a hopeful ending and Mm -hmm. that's by design. And the conversation that we have as readers afterwards is what Fitzgerald is is presumably hoping to start. Hey, wait a minute. There's a, a faithful observation about human nature and so, human society here that isn't hopeful. What do we make of that? Does he have a point? Is he right? Let's look around. And that's one of the great uses of, of literature, one of the great purposes of literature is to get that conversation started. But when we go into the story and say, well, the story actually is kind of hopeful and we do violence to it that thereby, then we're, we're kind of cutting the feet out from under a productive conversation. Yes. And I think we have I to define things right too. Angelina? Yes. Yes. Well, I think we're tracking. I think we have to be careful when we define things like what's hopeful. Okay. So for me as a reader, if I think an author correctly diagnoses the problem, even if he didn't offer a solution, I, I personally find that hopeful. I, that's step one. I, yeah, I, I get excited about that. Right. Right. That's why I love Gatsby so much. One of the reasons. Right. No. And I'm, and I'm feeling that I love it. I'm not, I'm not looking for a work of art to necessarily, I mean, we've said this before. I'm not looking for my artist to tell me <laughs> how to get to God, but I, I right. definitely want him to offer good warning signs and observations and you know, the things that art can do. Yeah, exactly. I want him to tell me in evocative ways what he sees. Yes. Right. And of course that opens the conversation of, is he seeing rightly? Absolutely. It does. Mm-hmm. And that's the conversation we, that we want to have. Does Fitzgerald see it rightly? Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful conversation. We could have a long conversation about what you mean by you don't necessarily need your artist to 
show you how, what did you say how to get to god or oh something? yeah even as i said it i thought oh i gotta unpack that for the next two weeks <laughs> yeah because I, I, you know, that's one of those things where it's like it, if he's it, it, i mean i mean something specific by that I, right, yeah right right, right. And it's, I, get, it's gosh, getting you a step no, closer I'm, there right so Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, golly, anybody who's heard me do a webinar knows I see the gospel in every story. So I, I don't right. mean that in right. this, like, in a particular way. I just figured I should take a quick second there to make sure we were all clear. No, about. I, I appreciate that. So Anne-Marie also mentioned something else that maybe is more for me because we talked a little bit about the concept of like asking what characters, whether characters should have done something. And um, she mentioned that it seemed like you both were sort of taking that discussion or taking that sort of should question thing as in the context of, of whether it's appropriate for students to judge literature, which is something we talked about. Um, and, and then she pointed out that and her understanding is that the should question isn't about judging whether the, the author made the right choice so much as judging the actions of the character within the world of the story, not judging the, you're not judging the quality of the book. You're not saying, does the fact that Fitzgerald made a character do this determine whether the book is good or bad? We're not asking students to do that. We're just asking students to contemplate, you know, given this, given the circumstances, what should the character have done? How would it have, you know, you could, you could even ask to some extent, how would it have changed the book? But you're not, you're not asking students to judge the work or to judge the book itself, you're just asking them to contemplate why the character did what they did and what would have happened if they did something else. Um, and that helps get you into the world of the book, not to get you outside of the head of the author, if that makes sense. So that's probably something worth clarifying because apparently there were a few people um, that were confused about what exactly we meant there and whether we were talking past each other. I don't remember whether we were talking past each other, but Anne-Marie is probably right that, that was that's worth clarifying. That when we talk about that question, we're not necessarily saying you know, Huck Finn did this. And thus, what does that, does that mean that the book is good or bad? Does that make sense? I think so. I mean, in, in, um, so really what we're, what we're asking then is in Fitzgerald's world, um, given the world that he's created for us, the sort of parameters of what he's offering us. Right. Does Gatsby do the right thing or not? Is that, or is that, is that the question? Yeah, but well, have, have, Chased after Daisy the way he did, according to Fitzgerald? Is that the question? I don't think that it's necessarily worth it to ask whether he did the right thing, personally. Um, I think you leave, I think if you leave it more open-ended, if you just say, should he have done it, it allows students to sort of pursue different angles of that as opposed to just like this moral um, element of it. Because that's where you risk falling into, uh, you know, the students can sort of moralize the story. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Yeah. So what I'm more interested yeah. in is, you know, really what I'm interested in is if, if like, if I say that, what I want to know is what, I mean, what other things, what other choices could he have made? You know, that's an important thing for students to recognize, like just in terms of the narrative of a story, like what is the choice that he made and what were the other options for him? When you ask a oh, question, that, it opens up, so it opens up the world of what's in the character's head. It opens up the world of the story. It puts you, you know, I'm not asking them to say that Homer, <laughs> that, that Virgil, that the Aeneid is good or bad because Aeneas left Dido. That's not what we're asking them right. to do. We're not even really asking them to, to say whether he made... I mean, maybe with older students, or, you know, in certain conversations, you could ask about the moral element of whether he should... He did the right thing by leaving. But you could even argue... You could go beyond... Or you could stay on a much more limited basis. Like, on the one hand, it's the, 
sometimes it's just should he have done it because he's going to live or die you know if he doesn't do it is he going to die um depends on the age of the students the degree to which that gets complicated but again it's not about judging i mean eventually we want students to learn to have the capacity to to sort of judge the aesthetic quality of a work but you know that comes with a lot of experience and a lot of years and that's but it's a different question than what we're asking when I say. right the question of 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 should a character have done this at, at, with the answer being to determine whether the work is a failed work or not exactly that's, that's a not pretty high level that's a high level question right and you're but you and you're almost always talking about form when you talk about that right Right. And I also think that uh, a lot of this hinges on defining our terms very, very precisely, which, yep. you know, we really haven't been doing in this conversation. Um, I know that I haven't, you know, when I say, when I say judge, I don't, I don't mean, I don't want my students to have discernment, but I don't want them to stand in a position where they think the goal of reading a book is to condemn it, which that happens in a lot of classrooms, right? That they think that's the point. As yeah, the um, you show. Yeah, right. right. And so right. that that's a posture I want to make sure my students are not bringing to a work. This is not the goal. I don't you're not expected to condemn or praise the book. That's not why we read it. And right. I think I think even talking about, quote unquote, the should question is, is can be very misleading because when I've seen it done. What ends up happening is one of the things that I like to do. So I wouldn't, uh, rather, my personal style, instead of saying, you know, should Gatsby have done this, would be to say something more like, well, he did it and then what happened, which I know is one of the things that it, it comes out of the should discussion when it's led that way. So, uh, you know, the should mm -hmm. question is kind of a, a phrase that can be misleading because I think there's more at least ideally going on where I know when you do the Annie, you consider what were the consequences of the, what the character did. And you, and you talk about that and that that's something that I like to talk about. Mm -hmm. yeah. if, 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 if I under, let me just try and clarify what I'm understanding here. If what we mean by the should, or let me ask this way is a synonym for the should question as follows. What alternatives lay before the character at this particular significant plot point? Mm-hmm. That's, is that a fair synonym for the should question? Um, yeah, I think that's a big, certainly, I mean, y yes, it is. <laughs> I think so. I mean, well, I, you if, probably if get some people who would answer that, would say maybe that it's more than that or less than that, but I think it's fair, fair starting point, yeah. Because that is obviously a, um, the only way to answer that question is to understand the plot of the story and to understand the characterization that the author has set up and to understand it well, mm -hmm. to be reading carefully. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great question to be asking. Uh, yeah. If that's what we mean by it, yeah. Um, but if we're but if we're doing any if we're doing moralizing, then we're stepping out of the story as readers and becoming you know judges, and that's where I think we all agree we're we're in thin ice there. Yeah. One thing yes. you, you mentioned moralizing, and one thing that I think I have seen this be helpful with, and you know, I tried this. I don't want to say I tried an experiment on my kids, but that's kind of what I did, I guess. Um, I, I, right after I was, you hung them in the tobacco barn? Oh, no, they were definitely you're, hanging by their feet upside you're down. You're on a roll, David. Their head was definitely, <laughs> the blood was definitely in their head. So I, maybe the, the, the results of my experiment were a little skewed, but um, that was one of the parameters in my report of my experiment. So, um, you know, little kids sometimes have a, they don't, I wouldn't say they moralize, but they tend to, think in somewhat black and white terms, right? Because <laughs> um, they're not always quite as, you know, nuanced in their thinking yet. Even my my rather dapper six-year-old now. Um, by the way, you have a story about him, don't you, Angelina? Um, I do. <laughs> but um, um, so I, I, I asked them, I think we were reading some very simple story or whatever. And I just remember asking them what 
whether a character should have done what they did. And I, rem- I remember thinking, I wonder what a seven-year-old's going to, how a seven-year-old's going to respond to that. Is, is he going to say, is he going to start kind of getting into this sort of, is he instinctively going to start thinking in terms of the moral aspect of it? Like if I, like this is right or wrong, but he never did. It was more like, well, if he hadn't done this, if he didn't do that, then this would have happened to this other character. Or this is what would have happened to him down the line, maybe. Or, you know, it, it was interesting to see how they wow. sort of instinctively go that way. And I don't know that that's true of all kids, but I think that um, in some ways, little kids who tend to think in sort of black and white ways, we can, because they think in black and white ways sometimes. I'm not saying that, I'm using that very, that, that sort of phrase very loosely. But because of that, it's easy for them to fall into like, Giving, it's easy for us to give them moralized thinking, right? To say, what yeah, is the moral I was just going to say, story? I'm very surprised to hear that that the the little Tupper that you're talking about didn't go in the moral direction. Mm-hmm. I, it's hard I to too. imagine a six-year-old hearing the word should and not thinking, was it right or wrong that the character did this? I'm surprised. I mean, I would agree with you that, that in general, we run the risk of, of encouraging a moralizing judgmental view of characters in literature by asking that, but I could be wrong. Well, well so what I was going to say is, you know... Uh, one of the things about like, you know, we had the, the morals at the end of fables. And so like when I read fables with my kids, I don't read them the morals. I, I think that's a. Oh, well, good. Maybe you've problem. trained them then not, not to look. Well, maybe, uh, but so I think what we can do though, is we can, as they get older, if they're kind of inclined to do that when they're young, it's, we can begin to help them not do that by just by kind of thinking about what characters should have done in a more nuanced way instead of just sort of a moralizing way. And I think that that we can help them. We can get them to the point where they can think about the complicated nature of story by asking questions like what within the context of this story and and we have to gear the conversation and steer it a little bit. But I think that's a, that's the kind of question that to your point, Adam can get them thinking deeply about the elements of plot. Even maybe when they're too young to really understand what the names for those things are. Like my six year old, does not care, could not care less really what a theme is, but I can still talk about themes with him, you know? And that might be each yeah. kid's probably different on that range. Would you agree with what I'm saying? I think so. You know I, think so. Actually, I, I, think, I have no idea what I just said to be fair. So, well, it sounds like what you mean is that if we can get our kids, uh, our students thinking closely about the various parts of the story that they're reading, the, the, who the character is and what, he, what situation he actually faces and mm-hmm. what are the alternatives open to him and to, yep. to get our students to put themselves in the shoes of that character and identify with the character mm-hmm. at, at some, at some deep level they're going to be more careful readers and they're um, going to be able to do that before they're necessarily capable of like, they're going to be able to have a conversation with me about that before they're totally aware of what all those names, the names of those things mean like literarily. So we can do like a sort of simplistic literary reading with them before they're capable of doing a more in-depth version of that, which you all, you guys would obviously agree with that. Um, oh yeah, of course. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think uh, part of it is just this is one of those things where I feel like I'm, I'm, what I say because I don't have enough time to say everything might just be worse than not saying it at all. But we'll give it a shot. Um, which is that I think a lot of our our readers are not sure what expectation they're supposed to be setting, and I and I, and, um, I feel like uh, a few years ago, definitely the teaching was that the point of the teacher is to draw out the moral and then decide if it's quote unquote biblical. Um, so I, th- I think that what we're all saying is that literary discussion should lead a student deeper into the text 
and not create a situation which, we're, which we stand at a distance, <laughs> don't get our hands dirty with it, and then condemn it as if that's the goal yeah. of reading. I think we're saying right. that. I, I the only, and the only I I I'm a, I'm a, I would agree with that. The only thing I would say is that well, perhaps not. There, that there are other forms of discussion about books that, while perhaps not literary, are still valuable to some degree. That's the only other. And I, I suspect you guys would agree with that. It's just, what's the place for them? Yes, I think it would be a, a, an issue of order. Like I always tell my students, you can't listen before you've heard. I mean, you can't talk before you've heard, right? So mm. I'm not saying you never talk back to the book, but I'm saying you don't do that first. <laughs> I, yeah, I would even go so far as to say, I'm not sure what level of student should be talking back to the book. I agree with that too. I think the role, the essential role of a student, uh, at, at least through high school, just to go out on a limb here, would be to perfect his listening skills. No, I completely agree with that. I completely, I always talk about uh, responding to the book as something way, way, way down the road. <laughs> yeah. Cause you need that to part, listen. Uh, the question of what, when's the point to, um, to add talking back into the, the, you know, reading equation and the reading and writing equation is a, that's a debate probably for another day. But my perspective on that would be to delay that um, because the, because of the critical importance of listening well, well, we should probably move on because there's a couple other questions here that we should address before we have to go here pretty quick. Um, do you guys have a couple minutes? Sure. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so there was some, somebody did send me a long email about um, ideal types and I can't read the whole thing on here for the sake of time. But uh, she had a question. Um, let's see if I can find the exact question. Okay, it's about point of view regarding Nick's point of view. Um, okay, she says, I, all three of you mentioned in an earlier podcast that Nick tells the readership that he's not very judgmental, but then in the next breath makes harsh judgments about other characters. And you pointed out that Nick is unable to turn that same mirror of discernment on himself. At the end of the novel, when Nick states that Gatsby came to a good end, could it be possible that his judgment changed due to his friendship with the character? Is this a form of nostalgia? Could it be a form of nostalgia? Do the statements that were made early in earlier podcasts about his judgments apply here in some manner? Um, so, and the point being that Gatsby, you know, that, that kind of weird comment that Gatsby came to a good end despite the fact that he died. Um, so could his, it be possible that his judgment changed due to his friendship with the character? Is this a form of nostalgia um, relating to the way he makes judgments? What do you guys think about this? It's a kind of a complicated. I love that question because it it dives right into the one of the main juicy tidbits of this novel, which is you can't really believe anyone. You can't you can't believe Gatsby certainly, and you frankly can't believe Nick either because he doesn't see himself very clearly, and so you're left to wonder at the end when he finally delivers his judgment. Does he know what he's talking about? Does he, does he see anything clearly? And I'm not sure the book gives us a good answer to that. I, I think what he does see clearly is that he's weary of the whole thing. And I don't know how, how much, uh, you know, I don't know how much farther he can be trusted. I, I really don't know the answer to that question. I think it's, a, it's, as, as, it's as good a question as it can be because it's a little bit intractable. Who knows? Angelina? Well, that makes me feel better because when you were reading the question, I kept thinking, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes two of us. I, I, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I tend I, to think, go ahead, Angelina. Well, I'm sorry. As I try to sort through what exactly does Nick think about Gatsby at the end, I am 
I just, again, see all this ambivalence, right? Like part of him is kind of like, Gatsby, you're better than all of them, right? But on the other part, not so much. You're a shady guy who may or may not have fixed the world series. <laughs> you know, that, that you are the American dream. You, your desire is what's good about America. Also, you destroyed America's pastime. <laughs> just yeah. so much ambivalence there. Well, and I don't think it's conscious ambivalence on Nick's part. I think when he says Gatsby turned all right in, out, out all right in the end, he means it. The question is whether he knows. Well, the question is whether he's reliable, not whether he's reliable, not because he might be lying, but because he might be blind. Right. That's the real question with Nick. And, and maybe, so, I don't know, you think Fitzgerald is asking, can any of us see ourselves rightly? Uh, yes, exactly. I think that's exactly it. Yes. Can any of us in the, in the, given a world where TJ Eckelberg is nothing but an empty pair of spectacles, can any of us see clearly at all? I think that's exactly the point. Hmm. There's, there's, so this, I want to go back a little bit in her email here because there's some interesting things here that I'd like to hear your feedback on that I think are related to this. Um, she, she says that it's evident that we're all classical educators based on our view that answers are to be found by looking to the past and the evaluation that the golden age is behind us, quote, golden age. However, people from other educational backgrounds may have a different filter. So if someone comes from a more progressive background that emphasizes learning by doing, problem-solving, critical thinking, she lists several other things, they may see the longing for, this, for the past as a negative, not a positive of the book. And to them... To them, the ending would be very nihilistic as that is the only way they have been prepared to view it. Someone with a Charlotte Mason background, she says, may see it differently as well. Instead of looking behind, they would look above. It's not that the golden age has passed us forever, but the futility of looking for it in the here and now is what this book points to. So when reading closely, it seems important to understand that various people have different sets of tools. They may be trying to expand them by listening to your podcast, but not everyone has the not everyone will reach the same conclusions in a literary work based on the tools they have to evaluate texts. This comes after she had just said, as a Christian, I firmly believe that all truth is God's truth. For me, that's a given, but I just as firmly disagree that all truth is Christian truth. So she says that, you know, she could read Plato or Plautus or Stephen Hawking or Philip Pullman or who or a number of other people and find various truths in all of them, but she would not say they're Christian truths. So um, do you, she says the, reader or teacher might need probably needs to understand the difference finding truth in a text and understanding the worldview a book is presenting. So given what she's saying there, do you agree with that, that kind of idea there? And I don't mean to, I'm not trying to say we should debate with someone who can't be on the show, but I, you know, do you, what do you think of this idea that about the difference between finding truth in a text and understanding the worldview a book is presenting? Adam, what do you think of that? I'll let you go first on that one. And again, just because um, Adam comes first in the alphabet in front of Angela. <laughs> no, that's fine. I appreciate the extra time to think. Yeah. You keep throwing me to the wolves first. David. I'm not going to forget this. Yeah. All right, Angelina, um, go, go, go. No, I, I'm not even sure I understand the question. And let me, let me try and, and, and take a tiny piece of that question and try and rephrase it and see if I've done it fair, uh, done it justice. The idea that um, we sh as, as interpreters and as teachers should keep in mind that different readers come to a text with different paradigms of interpretation and therefore might, um, might come out of a reading with, with a different understanding of what the book says. Uh, and we should, it, it sounds like the, the listener is cautioning us to be aware 
that not every reader has the same interpretive paradigm that we do. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's fair or not, but I'm going to respond to that phrasing of the question. And if it isn't a fair phrasing, I apologize up front. But in answering that phrasing of the question, I would say that the important thing is not the interpretive framework that we bring to the book, but the um, the literary meaning that the author is trying to communicate to us with his book in the common language that we speak. In other words, the classical educator in an ideal world wouldn't have anything different to say about the great Gatsby than the, than the atheist progressivist deconstructionist, because what he would be doing is looking at the English words of the great Mm -hmm. Gatsby and the literary form that Fitzgerald was self-consciously using and try and understand what Fitzgerald, who was neither a classical educationist nor a literary deconstructionist necessarily was trying to say. I don't, in other words, I don't think that our, that our, our educational philosophies give meaning to the texts we read. If anything, they should only help us read more carefully to see what's already there. And and I guess my answer would be that the, that the, the source of the meaning of a text is in the text itself as produced by the author, not primarily in the reader of the text and the framework that he brings to it. And I think that distinction is really critical. I mean, I think it's, it lies at the heart of a lot of the reading that we instinctively do and I, and I think coming down on the right side of that line is really important. I completely agree with that. And I think that's well said. And I, I, w- I want to uh, add to something else I heard you say. So we're going to take all of that bit by bit because that was a lot that was said in, the, in that, yeah, in that right. email. Um, I want to I talk about whether or not classical educators believe the answer is in the past. Oh, I'm um, glad you mentioned it. Good, good for you. Go. Uh, I wrote an article about this on the Cersei website called The Muse, the Siren, and the Echo, where I try to make some distinctions about this sort of thing. And so uh, in a nutshell, I don't think classical educators think the answer is in the past. I think classical educators are saying the same thing Fitzgerald is saying, that there are mysterious forces in the past that we unmoor ourselves to at our own risk. Well said. And and. We're constantly, as a group of people, trying to figure out what was it about the past that was so good and valuable and needful? Where did we go wrong? Where did we hurt ourselves? Because none of us are so naive as to think everything about the past was some grand golden age. You know, we're not going to get back to Eden. We're always mining through the past, right? What's the fertile soil? What's not the fertile soil? And I think that's the same thing a progressive does. We're all arguing over the particulars, right? What was good about the past? What was not good about the past? But I don't, I don't think classical educators believe that there ever existed a golden age. And if we could just get back there, everything would be grand. I mean, the reality of history <laughs> comes right up against that. And by the way, Fitzgerald isn't saying that either. I mean, it's right. not, it's, it's for anybody to read the great Gatsby at least this is what I think for anybody to read the great Gatsby and say um, that what it means is we should look to the past for certainty and that that will be our solution is misreading Gatsby. And I think that, that a correct reading of Gatsby, regardless of your own educational philosophy should end up being something different than that. We lost something from the past, but that doesn't mean we can go get it back. His point is we lost it. Hmm. And, and I, and I think an, an honest reading of, of Gatsby kind of has to stop there, whether you're a classical educator or, a, or an atheist deconstructionist. And I, I 
actually think that's a profoundly Christian truth. Because I was actually thinking about this this morning. I was kind of in my head putting together an article I wanted to write. So I will just uh, spin off some fresh ideas right here. I think that there's an urge in human beings to think we can turn around and go back to Eden. But we can't, right? God is constantly exiling us. He's constantly pushing us out and saying, that's not the way back. You cannot turn around and go back. So I, I agree. I am, I am excited when I see any author saying the same thing, because that's what God said. You cannot go back to Eden. It's not there anymore. The gate is closed. You have to go forward. Hmm. Do you, so can Christian truth come? So she mentioned this Christian truth question. Does Christian, can we, uh, I guess the question, I don't know if the question is, can Christian truth come from books that are not told from a Christian viewpoint? I think that that's somewhat self-explanatory depending on how you define Christian truth. Do you think then that we should, do you think that we should, that as readers, our goal should be to identify Christian truths such as they are in works that don't have, are not written from a Christian worldview. Is that, should that be our goal and how we approach the work itself as you guys, you know, have talked about? I don't know how to answer that question because I don't know what the listener meant by Christian truth. Yeah. I'm so confused about that too. Between God's truth and Christian truth. And I'm not sure what that distinction is. I'm also just completely perplexed because, uh, and then again, I've given some talks on this that are available on on the Patreon uh, bonus page. Um, but the early Christian fathers did not make those kinds of distinctions. You know, they called Virgil a pre-Christian saint. That's what I was going to say, yeah. (laughs) You know, they, truth is truth is truth is truth. And it all comes from God. And it's all, they all claimed it for Christ. They all claimed it as Christian. I mean, the monks preserved the works of pagan writers because they thought it was valuable for the Christian walk, that it would help to get to God. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they wrote, just loads in the middle ages, like they just wrote loads and loads and loads of Christian commentaries on these pagan works, but they thought it was a valuable thing to contemplate. So I don't, I'm not sure what the, what the person who wrote that letter means with, with her distinction between God's truth and Christian truth. I, I can't make that distinction. I can't find historically Christians making that distinction. So you're, but you're saying that, well, Adam, go ahead. Did you want to respond to that? No, no, go right ahead. So you guys would both say though that when we read, we should take the take the book for what it is, and then we should we should seek to identify the areas where Fitzgerald is telling the truth there, right? Absolutely. So I think her question then is is related to how do I mean where what we think is going to be true is going to be somewhat related to our own views on the world, right? Because we're gonna, we're all gonna kind of have different beliefs about what's true and what's not true. So then, in right. discussing so, books, how do we navigate those differences? Other than just by purely, I mean, can you, can you, can you, ha- can you navigate those differences in conversation and still? Mean, go ahead. When you, you mean when it, when evaluating books as to whether or not the author is telling the truth? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, so. I, I think there's a big difference between understanding what an author is trying to say. And evaluating whether he's telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Those are two fundamentally different processes. And my view is and that we have enough work before us to learn how to understand what the author has to say. Can I can I ask you a quick follow up question about that? Yes, yes, please. Okay, so you say there's the trying to say, and then what was the other thing you said? 
trying to understand what, what he's saying it. and then trying to determine whether he's telling the truth about it. So is the, is when you talk about literary reading, is, is that first thing what you're getting out there? Trying to figure Almost out what he's trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yes. When you talk about Almost literary, you're trying to figure out what he's trying to say. And then trying to, when he's trying to figure out the, the truth part of it, that's valuable, but not the same thing as a literary reading. Right. It's right. a logical reading at that point. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's an evaluation based on comparative worldview analysis of the book and your, you know, a comparison of your worldview to the worldview that presents itself in the pages of the author's work. And yeah. it's valuable, but it not the same to, thing. Well, it, it, it must come later. Mm-hmm. It actually has to wait until you have understood the author on his own terms in the same way that you can't actually evaluate a conversation you just had with a stranger unless you've, you know, paid attention to what he like said. You can't bake bread until it rises. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I and think so, it might be helpful. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, please, Angelina. I think it might be helpful to define what we mean when we say read it literarily, because people may not know what that means. And I don't yeah, mean to speak for you, so you can correct I'm me. You can correct it. me if, if I'll tell you what I think it means by that. I think it means learning to hear the what the author is saying in the language that he's saying it. That means understanding how stories work and what is the form of the of the work. And because it's it's like looking at a painting. If you're colorblind, you're not gonna you're not gonna get it, right? You have to or if you know don't yeah, hear. or looking at a painting if you don't know the basic elements of composition and line exactly. and light. And exactly. you know, I would I would say that exactly the same way that literary reading is reading a work of literature for what it is and understanding the conventions and the form and the stylistic assumptions and all the things that go into that particular genre of, of art, reading it for the art form that it is. That's exactly the way, what I would mean by literary reading. So can you do a literary reading without naming those things, without being able to name those things? Um, yeah. I mean, it, at, a, at a particular level, you can. I mean, you can ask a, a four-year-old who's the main character in this story and what does he want and why can't he have it? Mm-hmm. And so at, at his four-year-old level or whatever age he is, he understands some of the basic concepts of the, the protagonist in a story without ever hearing the word protagonist, if that's what you mean. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess the reason I ask is because it got me thinking about, while you were talking, I started thinking about painting. Like if I go to a museum, I don't, I'm not, my sister is getting her master's in, in art and art history from Oxford University. So she is quite literally an expert, right? So she can go to a museum and, you know, she is, she is the exact person to take someone through a museum, right? But I can go there and I can, and I can still spend time contemplating it. Um, and I can identify things about it that are, you know, realities about it, such as the way it's using shadows or, or lines or color or whatever. And I may not be able to name the formal element that's at work in the painting itself, but I can still sort of participate in a quote, literary sort of approach to it or artistic approach to it, even though I can't name it. Now in the long run, it's, I'll be much more educated and I'll be much better at understanding painting and how it works and much more capable of discussing it and obviously teaching it if I can name the things. But it doesn't mean that, that my, um, my observational experience with the work itself um, isn't valid, correct? Right. Except, yeah. except there, what you're really asking is, can I do it without words? Because, because the word protagonist is just one of many words asking us a, a student, who's the main character and what does he want and why can't he have it? Those are words too. They're just different words. And so your real question is, can I evaluate and experience a work of language without resorting to language? That's what you're really asking. Because when you, the analogy to painting is, can I use my eyes 
to experience visual art and have some reaction that's mediated through my eyes. Yes, but you can't if you're blindfolded. You can't actually experience a painting blindfolded. I would argue that you cannot actually experience a work of literature without the use of language. And, and, I, and I think that, that um, reading to a four-year-old mm-hmm. involves language. And if the four-year-old can't understand you, he doesn't have the story. And so there is, there is some continuum that exists. And you don't have to be at, the, at all the way at the end of the continuum in order to participate in a literary reading, but you have to be on it. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. And so I, I think we're all in agreement that nobody's saying you have to be a literature scholar to pick up a novel. I don't, I don't think anybody's saying that. No, um, I agree. That, that this, is, this is art for everyone. Uh, at the same time, I think we all agree, the better you get at it, <laughs> the more you get out of it and the more that you enjoy it. And some of this stuff is happening on a very basic level. Somebody might say, well, I don't know anything about how a story's put together. That's not true. Mm, everyone knows true. you have the main character. Everyone knows there's a conflict. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm, everyone right. knows it's supposed to move toward resolution. That's yeah. why we're unhappy when we get and to the end of the book. if you need more proof, watch a five and a six-year-old play outside in the backyard, right? all of those things they argue who's the good like who's the good guy who's the bad guy who dies first you know (laughs) (laughs) storytelling is an essential human experience so a lot of this we already know right except i would also just throw the caveat in one more time we know it through language and we use language to understand it yes yes without language we can't do any of those things and so it's a continuum Mm-hmm. I be- actually think literary analysis is the process of helping my students name the things that they see in the book. Yeah, or use language to understand them. Mm-hmm. That they are works of language after all. You know, while we're talking uh, uh, about, you know, is a book true? I, I can, so I'll give an example of a book that I think I read literarily. I think I heard the author and I thought it was untrue and I was mad about the book. But as I talk about it, I think I realize. I mean something very specific when I say it's not true. So the book was <laughs> Atlas Shrugged. And Oh, preach it, sister. Uh, thank you, Adam. So I, uh, I read this book and I was furious reading it because I Me kept thinking, too. this is not true. Pe- human beings don't act like this, right? These characters yep. were not real human beings who made real human choices. They were types of her philosophy. Absolutely true. was nothing but a piece of propaganda for her philosophy. And so yeah, she I had got to, to the end. She had to create, I, create like statues that weren't actual real people. That yeah, they did were what just she chess pieces she's moving yeah. around to make her political points, but they weren't real humans. So I got right. to the end and I was mad at the book because it wasn't true, but I didn't mean that it wasn't Christian true. I just meant it wasn't artistically true. It wasn't human true. Mm -hmm. People don't act like this. And so it failed for me as a work of art. Absolutely true. I totally agree with you. And, but the literary reading you gave it before you came to that conclusion was to understand Ayn Rand's construction of her characters and her construction of the plot. And you understood her on her own terms. And that was a necessary prerequisite to being able to say afterwards, Nope. I don't, I don't think she's telling the truth. Those are not, that's not how real people actually behave. One thing that I think is, I like that you're, well, I think is relevant here anyway. I think you're kind of getting at this, that, so we look at it as on its own terms, but the looking that we do is also done through like a sort of a tradition of language, right? That over time we've sort of curated ways of talking about these things, whether that's just coming up with the name theme and having a definition that's common to all readers right and so we're kind of mm-hmm. applying um that 
what you're describing there, the going, going to it as on its own terms, you're applying that within a tradition of reading. Agree? Um, I, if I understand you, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think I follow what you're saying. So I, what I'm thinking, I've been thinking a lot about my brother and I were just having a huge debate about this. Well, not debate. We were just having a big discussion about this the other night about like when we talk, when we, when we name things to what degree are we getting at the essence of the thing? Um, and, and that's a, that goes beyond the scope of what we have for a show that was supposed to end 15 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> but so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, we, the, the sort of the way we mean things, the way words are used, the way we mean things with words certainly have to be within sort of a tradition of use, right? Because if we're talking about themes, like themes can, that word could theoretically mean something else than the way it's used when we talk about it literarily. So if we're going to do a literary reading on something, we both have to be able to look at it for what it is. But then we also have to have that tradition of language, that sort of ongoing way of speaking about it that we, that's common to all of us, right? Yeah. Yes. You got to define your terms all the time. Absolutely. Yes. And I'm and, a big proponent of putting a work in its tradition. And yeah, exactly. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. So you, so there's the looking at it on its own, but then there's also looking at it within its tradition. And that is part of looking at it on its own, in my opinion. Um, be, mm -hmm. to some degree maybe not there's some well, none of these thing. works of art exist in a vacuum right, right. The, these right. authors are very deliberately working in a tradition right yeah right. i'd agree with that yeah all right well, we gotta we gotta start wrapping this up so uh, we kind of got off got off on a uh on a rabbit trail there which you know everybody was so surprised about um <laughs> <laughs> i think it was good though yeah me too that was I mean, fun if nothing else it was fun yeah, there we, you got, go. we got to talk about stuff we like to talk about, right? Uh, so, why would anyone become an English teacher other than to have fun conversations? Yeah, right. <laughs> Not for the money. <laughs> I mean, I guess to read books, right? You to, to read. <laughs> To read books for a living. Uh, it's, so, it's, so not, it's not a bad gig. It's not yeah. a bad gig. Uh, Adam, I'll let you once again because it's first in the alphabet. Uh, I'll let you give any any final thoughts on 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 this conversation on the Gatsby on whatever you want to say. You know, this is your chance to like talk about the New York Yankees or whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> uh, this was really great. It was so much fun talking about Gatsby with you guys. I'm, um, I am hot to do it when, again, whenever you want, just name the book and name the time I'm there. Uh, meanwhile, you can always come to centerforlit.com and see what else we're doing for readers and teachers. And we've also got a membership society, pelicansociety.com, where we've got um, resources behind a paywall that you'll love, including me reading classics in my own awesome voice, actually my own awesome list of voices. Um, so we got oh. a growing library of those and uh, love to see you around. Thanks guys. This has been really fun. This has been so much fun. This is my final thought too. This is the first time that I have ever sat down and had a conversation with Adam Andrews, despite the fact, and yes, I'm going to say her on air, despite the fact that Kristen Rudd has been telling me for years, you guys say the same things. You'll get along. You need to talk. So <laughs> shout out to Kristen. You were right. I loved <laughs> talking yeah. to you. And, and, I think we very much are on the same page about these things. I'm excited. Yeah, this has been a ball. Agreed. Yeah. One thing that Ian and I talk about a lot is that almost always it's it seems like areas where where we seem to disagree, it always seems to be like in some sort of matter of degree or some sort of definition. And that's why having these some discussions sort of narrow is fun. semantic thing. Yeah. yeah, because you have to like <laughs> literary hills to die on. <laughs> well, or 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 it's like you seem I mean the semantics matter, right? Because you don't you might think someone else is saying something different. And that's why some, sometimes the debate is just sorting those things out. And that's for people who love these sorts of things. Right. You know, 
dying on the hill on t- the hills together is sort of the fun part, right? <laughs> yep, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, it's been a great time. We definitely want to have you back, Adam. We'll we'll have to work out a time to to do that. I mean, we might have to like put out a poll and see if the listeners actually like you and all that kind of stuff. But fair enough. We'll do fair enough. Market research. I'll submit to that. <laughs> But thanks to you both. Um, just want to let everyone know we are doing um, the next book we're doing is Ishiguro's Ishiguro's uh, Remains of the Day. So that'll be a fun one. So make sure you're getting copies of that. We're going to be we're on this week. We're airing Act Three of our Henry V discussion, and then Julius Caesar's coming up. So if you're following our Shakespeare show, or you plan on doing that later, those are the plays that we're doing. You can find out the whole list of the next several books and the next several plays over at CloseReadsPods.com. Uh, and then also on the Instagram page and the Facebook page, we'll post all that there. You can follow us on Twitter if you if you like doing that. We seem to have less Twitter users than we do Facebook and Instagram users. Uh, so, but if you're that's out there, if you if you want it, and of course you can email us at closereadspodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch uh, via that means by, via via that means via that way. I don't you know whatever. <laughs> um, Pretty sure via means. Pretty sure I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Um, <laughs> this has been a great time. Thanks, thanks to you. Thanks to you both. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. Great time doing this. Oh, me too. Yeah, me too. This was a lot of fun. All right. Well, for Adam, for Angelina, and for oh, Angelina, we need to say it's Angelina Stanford is where they go find about. Find yes. Out about yes. Oh, and you know what? I didn't tell my gym story again. You want me to tell it real All quick? All right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so yes, David's son is very dapper and delightful, and I adore him. And so we were having a chat right before your daughter was born. This, me and your mom were talking to him, and she, she and I both got such a kick out of this. And so I'm talking to him and saying, are you excited about having a little sister? And he says, yes. And so I say, so after she's born, are, are you going to protect her? And he gives me this look, and he says very slowly, no, she's not <laughs> going to run away. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what's going on in your house that your son thinks protect means keep locked up and don't run away. <laughs> I love it. I love that that was just said on the air. That's awesome. I've got to, I'm going to have to look into this. I will say this morning when I came to work, he was wearing um, very nice black dress pants, probably from his tuxedo suit with a button down shirt, a yellow and blue striped tie and a blue sweater vest while rollerblading around the house. So one does not do anything. He does not do anything in this world with uh, without looking as dressed up as possible, unless he's not dressed at all. Those are the two options, basically. So <laughs> he's a man of extremes. I love this. Naked or coat and tie. Basically, yes, <laughs> yes. So and then he Beautiful. went to the movies like that today. I think my in-laws took him to Mary Poppins or something. So that he he went to the movies like he lives in the '60s, which I appreciate. So. Yeah, I do great. too. He dressed for a public occasion. I approve. Well, I mean, one does not leave the door without a coat and tie and a hat. <laughs> what do you think? That's we, awesome. We're not uncivilized slobs. Actually, I uh, am. But um, <laughs> tobacco-born do, jokes aside, we're civilized. Exactly. Do as I say, not as I do. Right. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, again, thanks. Thanks so much. And for Angelina Stanford, for Adam Andrews, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast and the Sourcey Cer- Institute, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.